I asked you to do some homework. First of all, what is the Egyptian name of, Saint, of, of Joseph? Zephaneth Panea. Good, good, good. You can use that uh, when you're at your next coffee social. Um, and what does it mean? How many of you found a number of different answers to that question? Good. I don't want to know your answers you found out, but you found out how to start looking things up. How, starting to figure out answers. Okay? Maybe it's somebody looking for a Bible study. Anyways, there's a, you can do your own research. You can do things at home. You can start to look these things up, whether it's in, your, in the footnotes to your Bible, which are sometimes helpful and sometimes not. But you can start to do these things on your own and study the Bible and start to learn the words of our salvation. Okay? Unfortunately, I already gave away the prize to the Kesters, right? Is that you guys, right? The Kesters got the prize, so congratulations. All right. Some of the images that are found in Genesis chapter 2 and 3. Come on. How many of you made a list at home? Oh, my, my homework people are falling apart here. Yes, okay. Yeah, well, it started off with... Uh, give, me, give me one. Genesis 2, 8. God planted the garden of delight. Good, there's a garden. Great. Fine. Waterfalls. Waterfalls. Where do you see waterfalls? I like that one. What's that? With the water. There, okay, there's a, there's a river at least we know. But why would there be waterfalls? There's a mountain. There's a mountain? How do you know there's a mountain? Because doesn't the water come fall from the mountain? Look, open your Bibles, Genesis chapter 2, verse 10. And a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And so the fathers of the church and the, and the Jews also said, the garden of Eden was a mountain. It was on a mountain. Okay? And when Adam and Eve were cast out of paradise, they were cast out from the mountain. Okay, as we're going to look at further along. What else did you find? See, that's a good one. You've got to dig a little bit. Okay, you've got to start to dig and start to imagine and, and dream and allow your imagination to run a bit. Okay, what else? Um, trees. Good, there's trees in the garden. Yes? Flowers. There's flowers. Okay, where, where do you see flowers? Because it's a garden? Yeah. Good, fine. Okay, good. What else? Fruit. Fruit, Okay. Precious stones. Why do you see pre- where are the precious stones? There's gold. Okay, if you look at verse 11, the name of the first is Pishon. It is one, the one which flows around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold and so forth and so forth. Notice the jewels that are mentioned are off in distant lands, aren't they? But how, do, how are jewels distributed to those lands? Through the rivers. Right? His gold is distributed to the land through the rivers. And so the, the fathers of the church, also in Ezekiel it's mentioned, that the ground of paradise was, like, was covered in precious stones, in stones of fire. Okay? In fact, we sing in the, in the hymn um, uh, during the uh, marriage rite in this church, crown them with precious stones. Crown them with precious stones. Coming from that idea that in paradise, Adam and Eve were literally clothed in jewels. Okay? They walked amidst the fields of paradise the, uh, on the, fires of, uh, the stones of fire. Okay? What else? What other images? Okay, there's animals on the edge, sure. What about when you get right up to the gate? Yeah, the angels of God are there guarding the way in. What else? Okay, there's a great mist which comes up. Okay, a cloud. Fine. Why is it important to get these down, friends? Why am I asking you to do this? Because you're going to see it all throughout the Bible. This is true, but even more importantly than, than continuing all throughout the Bible is that when Christ comes to give us back that which we lost, we're going to start to see some of these things reappear. Water, which gives life. A tree upon which hangs the fruit of eternal life. The tree of the cross. And so forth. If we don't know the images of paradise, 
we won't know what to look for when we see what Christ is giving us. And we'll miss the importance of what he's giving us. And unfortunately, the Christian faith, the Catholic faith to us, will be something that Christ kind of invented. I mean, he gave us some bread and some wine. And, uh, and, then, he, and then he called it his body and his blood. Well, I don't really know what that means. Because it's out of context. But if you understand the context of what's going on, if you understand what we lost, then you'll know what Christ has come to save us from and to give us back. Does it make sense? So I challenge you, go in there, read it again. Allow yourself to walk through paradise and see the way God plants it. What did it look like when God breathed the breath of life into Adam? What did it look like when, when Eve was taken from his side? Hmm? Allow yourself to do that. And pr- I promise you, you will read the Bible for the first time with great benefit. Okay? So, there's a mountain. At the, we finished last week with them being cast out of paradise. Why? Lest they what? Lest they eat from the tree of life. And what do we know about their exile? Where did they go? They went east. They went toward the east. Okay? And we're going to see that theme repeated over and over again. And where do you think Adam went? Besides just going east. Do you think he wandered far off? No. No, why not? Friends, if you lost if you lost your very salvation and you knew that what you had done was the cause of that, would you flippantly throw it at the wayside and walk off and leave? If you were thrown out of your father's home, knowing that everything within that home was good and it was what you desired, would you go far? No, I think you would turn around and knock at the door and plead with your father to allow you back in to ask forgiveness. And so I'll read you a text from a hymn that is sung uh, in our church uh, on the Sunday in which we commemorate the casting out of Adam and Eve. Okay. And there's a, there's a principle in, in Roman theology that, um, that goes like this. Lex orande, lex credende. The law of prayer is the law of belief. It holds true in our, faith, in our, in our church also, in the Melkite church. Okay? The law of prayer determines our law of belief. And so, when you hear the prayers sung in the church, you know the truth of our faith. And so I'll read this to you. Adam sat before before paradise, and lamenting his nakedness, he wept. Woe is me! By evil deceit was I persuaded and led astray, and now I am an exile from glory. Woe is me! In my simplicity I was stripped naked, and now I am in want. Adam was cast out of paradise through eating of the tree. Seated before the gates, he wept, lamenting with a pitiful voice and saying, Woe is me! What have I suffered in my misery? I transgressed one commandment of the Master, and now I am deprived of every blessing. So the tradition is that Adam and Eve, when they were cast out of paradise, did not go far. They lived right at the gates of the city of glory. And it was there that they kept their children. It was there that they raised their children. And that the family of God awaited for the mercy of the Lord to allow them to enter back in. Let's start with chapter 4, verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a tiller of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel brought of the first of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offerings, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. Okay, so what's going on? Why is it that, that one sacrifice is accepted? And the other is not. First of all, before we go to that, notice the first thing Adam and Eve do when they leave paradise. They have a child. Adam knew his wife Eve, and they conceived and bore a son. If you remember, we talked about the importance of the seventh day. 
and how there was to be a covenant union between God and man and between man and woman and between man and woman and all of creation. A covenant union. A joining together of the two. But instead, Eve walked away foolishly and spoke with the serpent. And here we see immediately as they leave paradise that in some sense they try to rectify the situation. Right? They try to restore that bond between the two of them. He knew his wife and she bore a son. And both of those children offer sacrifice to to God. And one is acceptable and one is not. Why? Yes. Because uh, Cain just brought some grain whereas uh, Abel brought the, the best. Good. So there's, there's a couple of interpretations here. And this is the, this is the most uh, well-known, the most common among the fathers of the church, that Cain, notice he offers of the fruit of the ground, but Abel offers the firstlings. Okay? The first, the first things he has, he offers to God. This is an example to us in our tithe. Okay? Because how often do we step inside the church, the basket goes around, and what do we do? I need to have my wallet on me. I we pull out our wallet. Okay, I got more receipts in there than I have money. But my wife did allow me to take a couple dollars with me, and I say, okay, I got like 10 bucks on me. Eh, I throw a dollar in. Cain and Abel. Do we offer the first things that we have? The firstlings. Do we make a priority out of our tithe to the church? To give to God what is God's first instead of last? Is our tithe an afterthought? Is it an afterthought? Just an example. Okay, so this interpretation that one offers the first things, one offers eh, something second. Okay, what else? What else do we know? How does it describe Cain's offering? Deacon David, how does it it describe? It was a right offer, but not divided. Okay, but how does how did what's that? It's not of a good heart. It was not from a good heart. Yeah, fine. But how? What does the text say? How does it described? Yeah, it is the fruit of of the ground. And what do we know about the ground? It just received the curse. And what is to come forth from it now? Thorns and thistles. Whereas before it had borne glorious fruit. Now it brings forth thorns and thistles. We have to read the Bible in context. Never, never, never rip a text out of context and start to interpret it on your own. Okay? And here in the context, we get this repetition of the ground as we're going to see through the whole story of Canaan. Well, actually, we don't have time to go through the whole thing. But there's a constant repetition of the ground, the ground which has been cursed. And so there's a connection there. That ground is also going to receive a lifting of that curse with the coming of Noah. But was that his choice? Was that his choice? I mean, what do you mean? When you guys ask a question, ask it loud. I have it right Okay, there. go ahead. <laughs> but, um, you know, was, someone had to till the ground. Is it really mm-hmm. his fault and that he gets sort of punished that his offerings are from the ground? Whereas yeah, and as, as the deacon's pointing out, the fathers say <clears> that, right. that when you have this, this idea of the firstlings versus not the firstlings and not the yeah. best... Okay, the, not the first fruits. So then you, you have a problem. It's not so much a problem with the thing offered as a problem with the one offering. Okay, mm-hmm. that we can even if you had come with the first firstlings and the and the sacrifice in his heart was not true. God knows the intention of the heart. Okay. All right. So, you, yes. Didn't uh, God say that Adam and Eve should be vegetarians initially? Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Cain is, is uh, raising animals to eat. Ah, is he raising animals to eat? That was Abel. What's he doing with the animals? Well, we don't know. It doesn't say he's eating them. And it doesn't say they start eating them till when? Uh-huh. Till after the flood. But he killed the animal and it's fat. To sacrifice it. Who is the first one? Who is the first one to, to kill the animal or slaughter an animal? When? Abel is the sheep. Yeah, in the garden, we have the first death of an animal, right? To clothe them with, to, to give them animal clothing. Okay. Animal sacrifice. They usually would eat the animal. Well, they sometimes ate it and sometimes it's a burnt offering. 
Okay, so it wasn't always something they ate afterwards. Okay, it's a good point, but look, these are the things we have to consider. These are the things we have to consider. And we don't have time to get into all of it, but these are ways you start to ask yourself these questions. You're not going to remember anything I said in this Bible study. You're not going to remember anything. Six months from now, three months from now, probably tomorrow, you remember nothing. But you have to get principles of asking questions. You have to desire to want to know. And trust me, the church fathers have already answered the question. Okay? I'm not up here making anything up because there's nothing new to be made up. All right? They already answered the question. All right. You guys know the story of Cain, Cain and Abel. I got a quick question. I'm going to come back to it in, in the question and answer. Otherwise, we're never going to get through anything here. Okay. All right. Chapter 4, verse 16. Go ahead. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Okay, so again you get this exile to the east. A repetition always. Toward the east is the place of exile. Okay? And go ahead from verse 17. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irod, and Irod was the father of Mahuahel. Mahuahel. How do you want to say that? Do you really want to say that? And so names? forth. And no, so I mean, we need to read it all. <laughs> you immediately are stuck, as we've done in our salvation history series a number of times. Immediately, when we get into the genealogy here in Genesis, what happens? What do you do? Yeah, you skip, right? You say, "I've had enough of that." The genealogies are there for a purpose especially in the first chapters of Genesis, I talked to you guys before, there's nothing here by accident. It's all here for a reason. The first genealogy that's given is the genealogy of of Cain. And what do you think his descendants are going to be like? Yeah, like father, like son. And so we get the first genealogy, the genealogy of Cain. And as we read through that genealogy, we come to verse 19. And, oh, well, we can go back. No, verse, verse 19 is fine. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other Zillah. Ada bore Jabel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have cattle. His brother's name was Jubal, and so forth. So immediately, not immediately, a couple of generations, all of a sudden, polygamy sets in. They take two wives. So whereas Cain had murdered his brother, all of a sudden the marriage covenant comes under attack. And in verse, 20, uh, verse 23, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Hearken to what I say. I have slain a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech, seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. Okay, so we have a genealogy of the line of Cain, like father, like son. If you count the generations, and some of you that have been in in the Salvation History series with me before, I apologize, we have to cover this material again, but it's important and everybody needs to know it. If you count the generations from Adam through Cain to Lamech, you come to the seventh generation. Lamech is the seventh generation from Adam. And what do we remember about the number seven? Covenant. It is the number of the covenant. And notice, whereas Cain was avenged sevenfold, I am now avenged seventy-sevenfold. Lamech has entered into a full covenant union with the devil. He has separated himself very far from God. In verse 25 we get another genealogy. The genealogy of? Of Seth. And notice what we learn about Seth. Go ahead from verse 25, Jennifer. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son, called his, a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another child instead of Abel, for Cain slew him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Okay. So notice, first of all, what do we know about the line of Seth? What kinds of things do they start to do? They start to call upon the name of the Lord. Notice the difference between Seth and Cain in verse 17. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. 
and he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son. Is Cain trying to build up? Is Cain's line building up the name of the Lord? Giving glory to the name of the Lord? No. They're giving glory to their own name. They're trying to build themselves up upon the earth. Whereas Seth's line, the exact opposite happens. Okay? And in chapter 5, verse 1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the, a father, the father of a son in his own likeness, after his own image, and named him Seth. Notice the repetition from Genesis chapter 1. Adam was made in the image and likeness of God as what? As a son. As a son of the Father. And now we have another in that generation, in that line, in that genealogy, who is in the image and likeness of his Father. Okay? The line, if you will, of the sons of God through Seth, and the lines and the generations of the sons of the devil through Cain. Those who are in covenant union with God versus those who are in covenant union with Satan. And if you count again, seven generations from Seth. We get another genealogy there, right? In verse 6. When Seth had lived 105 years, he became the father of Enosh. Verse 9. When Enosh had lived, so forth. Then we fall asleep, right? Okay. Don't fall asleep. It's there for a reason. If you count seven generations from Adam through Seth, who do you come to? Not Noah. Verse 21, seven generations. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. Enoch, the seventh generation. Enoch, notice, walked with God. Who in our story so far has not walked with God? Cain. Before Cain. Adam, when God walked in the garden, Adam hid himself in fear. And now we get one who walks with God. Enoch walked with God after the birth of Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. What's that mean, God took him? He didn't die. The Jewish tradition and the Christian tradition is that Enoch was assumed into heaven. Only one person in the history of the world has ever ascended into heaven. But quite a few people have been assumed into heaven. And Enoch was the first one that we know of. Who else was assumed into heaven? Elijah was assumed into heaven. Who else by tradition was assumed into heaven? Before Mary. Moses, by tradition, also was taken into heaven. Notice, Moses and Elijah both show up on the Mount of Transfiguration bodily. Okay? There's a whole, there's a whole text among the Jews called the, the Assumption of Moses. A whole writing about the Assumption of Moses. Yes? Oh, yeah, the names, the names are very similar. They weren't very creative. But these are clearly, as you read the text, two different lines. Many of the names are repeated. Okay, but these are not the same people. I'm glad you brought that up. Okay. It says God buried Moses. God buried Moses, yes, but if you look in the, the epistle of Jude, you will see the tradition picked up. I don't have the text. We can look at it in the question and answer period. Okay? But the, the epistle of Jude picks up the tradition that yes, Moses died and was buried, but that God took him then into heaven, assumed him into heaven. All right. Verse 25. Go ahead, Jennifer, nice and close to the mic. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he became the father of Lamech. Methuselah lived after the birth of Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he became the father of a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground which the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the toil of our hands. Lamech lived after the birth of Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Okay, the name Noah means rest or relief. Okay, this one will give us relief from the toil of our hands. So Noah will be, is placed intentionally in the context of what story? He is the one who gives rest. 
Where else have we seen rest being given in the book of Genesis? On the seventh day. Exactly. So Noah is placed right in the context of the seventh day and in the context of the seventh day, also in the context of the fall. Okay? As many have said, Noah is the first new Adam. It is through Noah that God will bring about or begin to bring about the salvation of man. He will give man rest and through Noah, man will enter into the presence of God once again. Okay. Verse 32. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. When, man began, when men began to multiply on the face of the ground, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were fair. Okay, who are the sons of God? Ah. What's that? This line of Seth, and you said? The fallen angels. Some have said that at this point, angels came down from heaven and had marital relations with women. I would say, not so. Even some, even some of the fathers of the church have talked about that. But in the context of what we're, of what we're looking at here, uh, other church fathers have pointed out this context, that there are two lines, two genealogies taking place. Those who are in covenant union with God... Those who walk with God, those who are in the image and likeness of God, those who are sons of God, and those who are sons and daughters of men, those who have attempted to glorify themselves upon the earth. Notice, if we go back to chapter 4, verse 8, Cain said to Abel, his brother, let us go out to the field. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel. Let us go out to the field. Why would they have to go out to the field? Because they were on the edge of paradise on the mountain of God. And St. Ephraim says that, that when the fall took place, the gate of paradise was closed and Adam and his family dwelt there. But when Cain was exiled to the land of Nod, east of Eden... He was exiled out into the plains, off of the mountain. And so the family of God, the line of Seth, was dwelling up on the mountain, right near paradise. And the sons of men, the line of Cain, were dwelling out there, out in the plains. Now, how do you think the food is going to be different between those two places? Who do you think is going to be eating better food? Those that are out in the plain where it's dry? Or those up right on the edge of paradise, on the mountain of God. Yeah, the sons of God. And so St. Ephraim says that, that the sons of Adam through Seth were men that were strong. They were huge men dwelling right around paradise, eating from the fruits from the edge of paradise. Whereas the sons of Cain were weaklings. They were small. And they were living down there in the plains. Okay, And so we read the text. When men began to multiply on the face of the ground, the daughter and daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were fair, and they took to wife such of them as they chose. Not a good idea. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in men forever, for, his flesh, for he is flesh, but his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men that were of old, the men of renown. The men of renown. Okay? St. Ephraim says that that the sons of God, the line of Seth, came down off the mountain to enter into marital relations with the sons or with with the daughters of Cain. And to the daughters of Cain and to the men of Cain, of that line, the men of renown, the great ones, Seth and his descendants, had come down. And now they bore men which were strong like their fathers, mighty men and warriors upon the earth. And soon in the story, we're going to have some major battles on the face of the earth. Any questions? Chapter 6, that first part of chapter 6 has caused much controversy, so we don't want to spend too much time on it, but any questions about that section? 
question? Yes. Who are the Nephilim? The Nephilim, the men of renown. The Nephilim, they show up later in the scriptures also, and they're described as giants, warriors, great warriors. Where else do the Nephilim show up in the Bible? Yeah, when they come in, when Joshua and Caleb go in to inspect the land, they said the men were, there are Nephilim dwelling in the land. Okay? And there's a reason for that. Yes? You said like father, like son, Christ. Uh, what do you mean by that? Uh, was simply this. As I do, so my son, as I raise him up, most likely, not that he doesn't have free will, but most likely he will follow in the footsteps of his father. We see this all the time today, don't we? Where is, this happens unfortunately, this happens unfortunately oftentimes in cases of abuse, where a father is abusive or he's an alcoholic or something like that. The son grows up and the image he has of fatherhood in his life is the one he grows up to mimic, okay, oftentimes. Not always, but oftentimes. And this is exactly how the story plays out in the book of Genesis. Let's go ahead and read then. You guys have any questions about the years they're living? It's a fantasy world. Do I believe they lived 900 years? Impossible! This story is getting crazier and crazier. Man can't live that long, Right? We don't know what in what way they were measuring. Man can't live 900 years. It's not possible. What's a year? Yeah, whose year? Right, it could be days. It's not possible for man to live that long. And Christians, what do you say to me? We are never, we were never meant to die in the first place. Get that thought out of your head. We were never meant to die in the first place. You want to see a miracle? Someone who lives forever. That's the way you and I were made to live. That's the way Adam was made to live. Okay? Is it possible for them to live that long? I would say yes, it is possible for them to live that long. Some of the fathers say about the 120 years that this was not necessarily... The, the lifespan that was now given to man from God, but this, these 120 years was the time period from this point to the flood. That they would be given 120 years to repent and change their ways. We have to get into to the Noah story. So let's, let's start with verse 9. Chapter 6, verse 9. Go ahead, Jennifer. The majority of the church fathers took this text literally on its face value, including St. Thomas Aquinas. Not that he was a church father, but I would just say, including St. Thomas Aquinas holds that. Okay. Augustine holds to certain time periods in the creation story. I don't know what he says about the, the ages of man. Okay. There also is a theory that at this time in, in, the, in the creation story, that the atmosphere of the world, this mist that went up, this atmosphere created a certain environment in which man did not age as fast. Is it possible? It's possible. Okay. Doesn't it say later on that God decides that man should live about 70 years or something like that? I don't think so. I think this is the only reference. I mean, not, not in Genesis, but later on. Okay. All right, let's move on. Verse, verse, uh, verse 9, chapter 6, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end for all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. And so forth. All right, I have for you a handout, but I don't have enough for everybody, but they're up here. So those that stay for Q&A can have this handout, okay? Um, and it has at the bottom of it a structure called a chiasm. A chiasm, coming from the Greek letter for, for our X, the chi, is a literary structure that's put into the text. Many have said that the, Noah, the story of the flood is kind of 
Again, just like chapter 1 and 2, all of these parts which are randomly thrown together. Not so. The whole story of the flood is put into what is called a chiasm. A chiasm is a literary structure by which the first part of the chiasm, the first line in the story, is repeated at the very end. Maybe not the exact line, sometimes it's the idea. And so forth, with the second one and the second one in, and so forth like that. So if you're patient, and you can read in that way, you come up with the center of the chiasm, which is the most important point in the story. The story is written to draw your attention to that point. Okay? And I have for you, at the very bottom, a very basic, extremely basic chiasm that, that is the structure of the whole flood narrative. That the entire flood narrative, all the way from, chap- from chapter 6, verse 11, all the way to chapter 9, verse 1 through 17, that entire section is built into a full structure that mirrors itself all the way to the middle. And the very middle of the chiasm, which tells you the whole point of the story, is chapter 8, verse 1. And God remembered Noah. When it says in the Bible that God remembered, what do you think that means? You think God forgot about Noah? No. What does it mean that God remembered? He turned his attention to, all right. Any other thoughts? The covenant. What about the covenant? When it says in the Bible that God remembered, it does not mean that God forgot, but rather that God is about to bring about what she is saying, a remembrance, a bringing forth a union with Him and the thing that is being remembered. And so God remembered Noah. He brought him to Him. When you remember something, you bring it to mind. There's a union between you and the thing remembered. And so God is about to bring about, God is about to bring about in the middle of the flood narrative, the remembrance the reunion of the covenant, the restoration of the covenant with Noah, the one who gives rest to mankind, the one who recalls for us the seventh day. Throughout the flood story, you see a repetition of that theme of the covenant. If you go back to chapter 7, verse 2. Go ahead, Jennifer. I'm going to have you read a couple of verses just to get the theme. So read verse 2. Go ahead. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate. And seven pairs of the bird of the air, also male and female. Verse 4. For in seven days I will send rain upon the the earth forty days and forty nights. Verse 10. And after seven days the waters of the flood came upon the earth. Chapter 8, verse 4. And in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month. Verse 10. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. Verse 12. Then he waited another seven days and you sent see that? forth. Throughout, and these, guys, these are only, this is all, we're just skimming the surface here. The entire flood story is embedded with the number seven, and therefore it is embedded with the theme of the covenant. Okay? Turning to chapter 8, I'm sorry, chapter 9, after the flood is over, we get this same repetition. In chapter 9, verse, uh, verse 8. And we're going to do the same thing, but notice the word that is mentioned. Go ahead. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your descendants after you. Okay, so the, the, the word covenant is mentioned explicitly, but watch this. That's the first time it is mentioned. Go ahead and read us verse 11. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off. Verse 12. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I make between you, verse me and 13. you. I set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant. Verse 14. When I bring clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant which is between me and you. Verse 16. When the bow is in the clouds, I will look upon it and remember the everlasting covenant between and God. verse 17. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant. How many times? Seven times the word covenant is repeated. How do you discover that? You pay attention. Pay attention to the text. And when you start to see a word repeated over and over and over again, like we saw with the, with the theme of ground, the ground which was cursed, pay attention to that. 
Okay? And you can start to discover on your own certain things about the text. Some have said that the, that the, uh, the flood was a reversal of the entire creation story. Okay? A reversal of the entire creation story. In some sense, a decreation of creation. In the beginning, the waters that were above and the waters that were below were together. And so God made a hard rain fall upon the earth for day after day after day until it must have seemed as though there was a connection, a sheet which stretched from the very heavens to the sea below. In that flood, all living things were snuffed out. And you get the theme that you remember from Genesis in verse 21 of chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 21. And all the flesh died that moved upon the earth, birds, cattle, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm upon the earth, and every man, and every man, everything on the dry land whose nostrils was the breath of life died. Okay, do you remember in Genesis chapter 2, God breathed the breath of life into man. And so now that breath of life is taken away. A decreation of creation. And then a recreation of creation begins. And in chapter 8, verse 1, go ahead. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. Do you remember in chapter 1, verse 1 of Genesis, when God created the heavens and the earth, what was it that was sweeping over the face of the waters? The wind or the ruach, the Spirit of God. And so go ahead, Jennifer. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. And the Saint, Saint Jerome in particular says, and Saint Ambrose also says, do not think the waters subsided on their own. Far from it. It was a divine action of God sending down His Holy Spirit, His creative spirit upon the waters. And just like the waters of creation that were parted, the, the dry ground may appear. Just like the waters of the, of the Red Sea that were parted, that Israel might cross therein. So the Holy Spirit descended upon the waters of the flood to part those waters. In fact, I was just saying to Romanos before that I wish we could just do this Bible study right there in the baptistry because you see the icon of the flood. And the icons always tell us the truth of the historical narrative. Man reads the historical narrative and he sees the surface. But behind that surface story is the story of the hand of God. And so you'll see, I, I recommend that before you guys leave, go in the baptistry, look at the icon of the flood, and it will show the hand of God reaching down from heaven. And it says, And God sent the dove to the ark, a symbol of the Holy Spirit. But in the, in the flood narrative that we're about to read, who sends the dove out? Noah. Noah. But the fathers of the church, the iconographers of the church, know the truth of the story. That it is God who sends out His Holy Spirit over the waters of the flood to save mankind. And so, what is the first bird that Noah sends out? The raven. The raven. And so now you... What color is a raven? Black. black. And now you have a black raven flying over the waters. What does that remind you of? The ruach. The what? The election of the Pope? Whoa! Okay, well. <laughs> All right. Wasn't expecting that one. But, when, is there, when else do we see blackness, darkness over the face of the waters? Creation. At the beginning, exactly. Exactly. The saints say that Noah sent out the raven that hovered as darkness over the face of the waters. And then, what did he send out? The dove, so that the Holy Spirit, like the light which shined forth from the mouth of God, could come into creation and dispel the darkness. And so you notice, the raven never returns to the ark. Okay, It is cast out. A recreation of creation. Where did it go? Where did it go? I don't know. Where did the darkness go? All right. The waters subside... And the ark comes to rest. And Noah comes out of the ark. And what is the first thing that Noah does? What should Adam have done on the seventh day? Made a covenant union with his Creator. And so the first thing that Noah does, the one who is righteous upon the earth, verse 20, 
Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing odor, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. And so forth. Chapter 9, verse 1. I'm going to read. And God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. What does that sound like? What's the next thing in Genesis that God says? And have what? And have dominion over creation, over the birds and the animals and so forth. But notice the text. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the air. Whereas Noah was able, like Adam, to call forth the animals to have dominion over creation, with the flood, there is somewhat a, a further separation of, of Adam or of man from God. And why are they to have fear? Why are they to have fear? Verse 3. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. So now, the animals become food for, for Noah and his sons, and there's a separation of that dominion. So remember, up to this point, they were vegetarians. So when you fast during Lent and you give up meat, you're acting like Adam before the fall and the early men of the, of the earth before the flood. Verse 18. I know I'm out of time, but you guys got to give me five minutes. Verse 18, the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was peopled. Noah was the first tiller of the soil. Who else do we know that was a tiller of the soil? Yeah, but before him. Adam. Adam was also a gardener. Noah was the first tiller of the soil. He planted a vineyard. He ate of the fruit of the garden. And when he ate of the fruit of the garden, he sinned. And notice that sin is going to now redound upon his children. Okay, Noah is another Adam. And he drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told the two brothers outside. Then Shem... Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it upon both their shoulders, and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew that his youngest or little son, what he had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a slave of slaves shall he be to his brother. Does anything strike you funny about that text? Who had done something against him, against Noah? Who had sinned? Ham. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and went and told his brothers. And now, who is the one that gets cursed? Canaan, his son. What's going on? What's going on here? We don't have time. I don't have time to lead you into it. So I'm just going to have you turn to a text real quick that I think is helpful in understanding this. The nakedness of your father is a euphemism. It means something more than what is being said here. If you turn to the book of Leviticus very quickly, Leviticus chapter 18. Keep your hand in the book of Genesis. Turn to Leviticus chapter 18. Ah, good Catholics. Oh, I thought it was in the New Testament. Verse 6. None of you shall approach anyone near of kin to him to uncovered nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father which is the nakedness of your mother. What does it mean to behold the nakedness of your father? You don't want us to say it. <laughs> well, no, I don't want you to say it. Okay? <laughs> to behold... Look, there's a reason in, in, in St. Paul when he talks about the marriage covenant that he says the man is the head and the woman is the body. Because as Eve came forth from the side of Adam, so she returned in the marriage covenant. The body of the husband is the wife. So, Ham entered into the tent of his father and he saw in the full biblical sense of seeing the nakedness of his mother. You guys have any questions about that? Am I being clear? No. All right. Why would he do this? And we'll finish with this. Why would he do this? Who is the oldest son? 
Shem is the oldest son. Shem will be the one who receives the familial blessing. He will become the, the father of the household. Okay? He will inherit, he will be the head of the family, if you will. He will inherit all things. Ham is not the oldest. But there is a way among the Semitic culture in which someone could take over possession of another's throne, another's headship. And it was to do exactly this. We don't have time to turn to it, but write it down if you're taking notes. 2 Samuel chapter 16, verse 20. It's just one example of many times in the Old Testament, especially among the kings, where one man who is trying to usurp the throne of another takes the other's wife and has relations with her. And so we see here in the book of Genesis that Ham enters into his father's tent. He has relations with his mother. And I will point out one thing in closing. Chapter 9, verse 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And notice what it mentions. Ham was the father of Canaan. It always identifies Ham and his son together. Noah was the first tiller of the soil. He planted a vineyard and he drank the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, told his brothers outside and so forth. Ham and Canaan are related as father and son. And Ham and Canaan are also related, most likely, as half-brothers. You'll see that in the next chapter, which I'm going to give you guys for homework. I didn't get to chapter 15, I'm sorry. Chapter 10, 11, and 12 are put into a particular structure. I'm going to give you the structure, and your homework is to figure out what, why it's there like that. Always in genealogy, the oldest is mentioned first, and the youngest is mentioned last. But here, in chapter 10, we find the genealogy inverted. Japheth is mentioned first in, in verse 2. Then Ham, okay, in verse 6. In verse 15, his son is mentioned within the genealogy of the brothers. And then the oldest, Shem, is mentioned. So you have an inversion of the genealogy. Japheth, Ham, Canaan, and Shem. Then you have the story of Babel and a repetition of Shem's genealogy. So that Shem's genealogy is on both sides of the story of the Tower of Babel. So, that's your homework. Why is it like that? Why is it inverted? What's going on in the story of the Tower of Babel that would be important so much to invert a genealogy and put it on both sides of that story? Look, you guys, if you can figure out these patterns in the book of Genesis, you'll be well on your way to memorizing the text. I have a little game I play with my nephew. I hand him my Bible, and I, I ask him to tell me, uh, read me a verse, and then I tell him where it's at on the page. Because you've got to memorize the structure. If you know the structure, you'll know the whole story. Okay? It's there to teach you about what's going on in the story of this covenant relationship. Fine. We'll take a five-minute break or a three-minute break. We'll do three minutes. And then we'll come back, those that want to stay around for a Q&A. I don't, there we go. I don't know what the mark was put on Cain, and I, I looked it up. I couldn't find an answer anywhere. Uh, and uh, that's one of those things where the fathers seem to just kind of throw up their hands and say, I don't know. At least I couldn't find anything. What was the mark that was put on Cain? Yes. In the garden, uh, the Adam and Eve made their own little covering from fig leaves, mm -hmm. and then God covered their sin with a blood offering. That is to say, he sacrificed an animal. Mm -hmm sort of giving you a, a shadow of what was yet to come. That was, first they used vegetation, then there was an animal. Mm -hmm. So it could have been sort of a sign maybe to sure. Cain and Abel, hey, you know, the vegetation offerings aren't acceptable. It's the animal offerings that are acceptable because they were going to model God. That's possible. Yes? Um, the remembrance that, um, that God does of Noah is related the, oh, as when the uh, good thief is up on the cross and he asks Jesus to remember him when he enters his kingdom? Sure. Is that the same thing? I think, yeah, is the, is the idea of remembrance the same between um, God remembering Noah and the good thief asking our Lord to remember him when he comes into his kingdom? And say, absolutely. It's a great connection. 
Yeah, that's a great point. And remember, when you think, uh, this is why this is why epistemology is so important. The study of of of, of reason, because um, to remember, never let these things go past you. What does it mean to remember? What happens when you remember something? Don't just walk by it. Oh, yeah, it's Bible talk. What happens when you remember something? You call it to mind. You bring it. You make it present to yourself. Noah was made present to God. Okay, and when things are made present to God, then the things which are pre- which are God's are participated in. Yes. Uh, following up on that, is there any sense in which the whole Bible could be said to be a chiasm with, um, you know, Jesus at the center? Uh, yeah, the, the 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 point of the chiasm though is 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 a literary structure so that um, yes, sometimes it's ideas where you get a, a paragraph or an idea um, that's has the other idea on the other side of it, but still it's it's paralleled to the middle. Okay, so it's really a structure to it. Um, but fine. I mean, you do get on both ends of the Bible, the beginning of the, uh, the Garden of Eden, and at the very end of the book of Revelation, also the Garden of Eden. Um, and so maybe not so much a, a, a chiasm, but a frame. Okay, and always, and frames are used all over the place in the Bible. We haven't talked about it yet, but where one phrase or idea is mentioned at the end the other phrase or idea is mentioned and you have to interpret what's in the middle based upon those two things okay an example of that is uh in the gospel of john when john the baptist says behold the lamb of god and that phrase lamb of god is mentioned on both sides of the story of the baptism of christ so you have to understand his baptism in light of that phrase lamb of god and then you got to go back into the old testament to develop that but so I would say maybe more of a frame than a chiasm on that point. Yeah. The descent of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, it talks about the wind and the fire. And I've often heard the wind referred to back to Genesis at the creation. And, and as we talked about it earlier today, the, the tongues of fire, can you enlighten me on that at all? Oftentimes, I just off the top of my head, oftentimes fire is also associated with the Holy Spirit the working of God. You see that in the fiery chariot which comes down to take Elijah up into heaven. Okay? Um, you see that also in the flames of um, the three young men in the fiery furnace which become kind of like a wall. The Spirit of God descends and the fire becomes a wall through which the young men are preserved from the world outside. Look, you, when you're seeing these themes, they're not there by accident. This is the point that the same story, it's the same plan of the recreation of creation that is repeated over, don't worry about that, that is repeated over and over and over again throughout the Bible. And if you know the story of Genesis, you know the story of the Bible. If you know it well, that's why I wanted you to read it three times. If you know it well, it will appear again and again and again and again. It is throughout the entire Bible. It is the story. It is the story. And when man comes into contact with God... All of those things that are present to God, all of those good things which He wants to share with man, become present on earth. Okay, it's not a, it's not just a nice coincidence, isn't that nice that Saint Ephraim thinks that there's the garden and then there's the temple and there's the Catholic Church? It's not an accident. It's the same revelation being manifest to mankind. And if we know that that revelation, then when it is revealed to us in the church today, it will not be something that is accidental. Well, you know, maybe we could baptize without water. You can't baptize without water. Adam and Eve were baptized through the waters of creation. They were born through those waters. Noah was baptized in the flood. Israel was baptized in the Red Sea. Elijah was baptized in the Jordan River. You are baptized in the baptismal fountain. It is the exact same action, the same movement of God toward mankind that is revealed through these things on earth. It's not by accident. Anyways, other questions? Yes. The questions going about and connecting various parts from Genesis to the New Testament, the thought came to mind we have in Genesis when God breathes life into Adam. We also have in the New Testament where Jesus breathes on the apostles. Absolutely. Um, it's the same thing, but now Jesus is conferring, what, the sacramental um, functions to the apostles? Um, is 
Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought this up. The sacraments of the church, on the same veins we're just talking about, are not something new. These are things which are proper to God and God alone. And when man shares in the things which are proper to God, then suddenly among men you find the things that are normally considered divine. Suddenly, people are healed. Life is given. Sins are forgiven. Man is reborn. Death no longer has dominion over him. What is common bread and wine becomes the body and blood, the life of God. When you're you're reading the New Testament, that Jesus breathes that gift of forgiveness into the apostles. This is not something Johnny come lately or something he invented. He's giving back to Adam that which he lost. That is dominion over creation and ability to make right that which is wrong. I don't mean to be yelling at you guys. I'm sorry about that. Right here, because she already asked a question. Just, just oh, sure. Okay. In chapter 6, yes, we find out that uh, God finds out that uh, every inclination of man's heart uh, was only bad all day long, and he regrets he ever made mankind on earth. Yep. Now, in 9, uh, we find out that uh, God, uh, I'm sorry, in, in 7, uh, that he's going to destroy everything. He's, he's, he'll wipe out humanity, uh, and he'll not only wipe out humanity, but all the animals, the creeping things, and the birds of the skies. Mm-hmm. Now, why did he wipe them out? I mean, God's the one that, I mean, man's the one that was bad. Why all did right. he continue? Is, is sure. man now representative of these life forms? Good. Is he the that's, highest a, that's a great question. What is man's relationship to creation? It's the culmination, yes, but what's his relationship at that culmination to the rest of creation? What does it say in Genesis? He is to have dominion. And one who has dominion has an ability, I've talked about this a hundred times now, to set right, or when one who has dominion over something doesn't make it right, and he, in other words, he introduces something evil into it, then the thing, the, 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 the organism which he is overseeing is fundamentally uh, broken. And we get that at the beginning of Genesis, not just here, but with the fall. That with the fall, not only does Adam fall, but the whole of the, all those things that are under his dominion that he is supposed to set right also fall. This is why among the saints, St. Mary of Egypt comes to mind. The story of St. Mary of Egypt is very beautiful. And at the end of the story, as she lays dead on the ground, a lion walks up and helps St. Zosimus dig, the, dig the, the grave of the saint. And people think, I know I do it first, oh, geez, you know, this sounds really crazy. This is the way it's supposed to be. Man is to have dominion over creation. The relationship, which we always, in the, in the beautiful stories of St. Francis that he had with all the animals, this is normal. When I walk outside of my house and the deer go running, as they did last night when I walked out of my house, that's not normal. When man dies and he's laying dead in the tomb, it's not normal. And we've got to start to get our mind turned around. We're seen through the eyes of the fall rather than the eyes of God. Last question. In a related vein and kind of apologetic related, what do you say to people who call upon the story of Noah and say, you know, this is an example of how God is not a just God and what kind of God is this that he would wipe everybody out? Like he's, he, he's obviously either... He's changed his mind about things, or he's not really a nice God because he's going around killing everybody. Yeah, I would just, the, the, the fathers of the church, St. Ephraim in particular, says that it is an act of mercy of God to stop man from his further sin, lest he fall further and further into disgrace. And I'll just ask you to turn, we'll, we'll finish with this, the epistle of St. Peter, chapter 3, 1 Peter, the first epistle, chapter 3, verse 18. You guys there? Okay, verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and preached the spirits in prison. We say in the Creed, he descended into hell, right? In which he went and preached the spirits in prison, who formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, right? Noah, his wife, his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their three wives, eight in all, were saved through water. 
baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not by a removal of dirt of the body, but as an appeal to God for a clear conscience. So he says, he says, look, when Christ descended into Hades, he found those that had been disobedient during the time of the flood. So I would say, oftentimes God's action to us might seem horrific, an allowance of man to die. However, that allowance for the death to take place is, can be seen also as an act of mercy. As we saw in the tree of life, man was separated from that source of eternal life, that in the right way, on the right day, he might be brought back to the presence of God to eat again from the tree of life and to live forever. And so here, these men were saved, some of them anyways, who had sinned, yes, but they were saved because Christ descended and found them worthy of resurrection. Okay, God bless you guys. I'll see you next week. Um, What are you going to do next week? You're going to bring a friend with you. All right, but also Thursday, Chesterton's Everlasting Man at St. Leo's. So I'll see you there.